0: And so, as we're continuing our series on the Ten Commandments, uh, would you open your Bible with me to Exodus chapter twenty? Exodus chapter twenty. We'll be looking at verse fourteen. <coughs> I uh, I expressly did not feel called to be a youth pastor. Um, not only because I, I didn't feel called to it, but I I hope to avoid a lot of these conversations and these type of sermons. Um, but uh, I guess you can't totally get out of it every once in a while, so that'll um, be a good time. If you've uh, just are joining us, we've been in our series on Ten Commandments, and now looking at Commandment Chapter Seven, uh, Commandment Number Seven. And as you, if you want to go back, all of these sermons will be in the series on uh, online on our website ashnaz.org. And it's kind of good to kind of fill them in. I really believe that they are all connected in a strong way. Uh, So I'd encourage you to go back. I think the first three are already on the website, uh, and you can go listen uh, to them. Uh, But we've been having a format that we'll look at even with uh, commandment number seven, simply to ask, what did this mean for Israel? Um, What did this mean in its original context? uh, context? And uh, the second question is, what does this protect us from? For Israel was convinced that the commandments were a positive thing. They gave life to the community. They protected the community. And so we have to ask the question, what did this commandment protect them from and us from? And then finally, we will look, of course, of, of how Jesus picked it up on the commandments, uh, what Jesus taught, and uh, how it can apply for us is our third question. It's kind of a helpful format. You see in your bulletin, if you want to take notes, you can take notes along that way. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you ever been really put in your place? I mean, someone just said something or did something, and you thought you were here, and they just put you in your place. Um, You know, it it happens, it's, it's actually a good thing to be put in your place sometimes, right? You can kind of be riding too high or too low, and someone may even lift you up and and put you in your place. I had a recent experience of being put in my place just last night. Um, You can kind of guess. Church, I need you to know something. Um, Back in 2015, December 2014, I graduated Divinity School. I'd been going to college and my master's program. I had uh, moved cities to pursue a woman. I had built a house uh, for us to live in. I'd, I'd been doing a lot. So 2015, we'd been married, and uh, we, we had both come to the decision that I would not pursue a church immediately. Thanks, I wouldn't be here today if I would've. Um, and and uh, I said, you know, let's, let's, let me take a little Sabbath. Let us kind of take a Sabbath so we can do some traveling before we settle down. Um, because my calling and work, when I take it, it settles us down, right? And so Rebecca's work is a little more flexible. She can work PRN. And so she's, you know, she, she said, I'll work periodically, kind of pay the bills, but we'll travel. So we did four big trips in 2015. You just needed that back history to understand what I'm about to tell you. Last night, we're sitting with our friends, and my, my cousin Luke is in town as well. Uh, he, he works at a church in Philadelphia. And we were just having a good time last evening without the children, hanging out. And I reminded Rebecca, I, I sent in 2015, I sent her and her friend, um, well, we sent, we, Rebecca, yeah. Rebecca went to New York City with her friend, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> going downhill already. I, Rebecca and her friend went to Joc- uh, Jocelyn, went to New York City, had a girls weekend in New York City. And I just kind of said, remember that time I sent you guys to New York City to have a good time? And what did what did Rebecca say? Just you just here. You just here. what did what did Rebecca say? What did you say? You remember that year you didn't work and I did. <laughs> remember that year that you took off and I worked and paid the bills and, and supported you, you bum. Uh, <laughs> that's I just had to translate it for you right there. She put me in my place immediately in front of my friends and family, right? <laughs> Zing, put me in my place. It's a good thing to be put in your place. And some of us who are husbands or wives in this room, we've put, been put in our place maybe more times than we'd like to count sometimes. But that's a good thing. Being put in your place uh, can be, and now it can be a hard thing. I, I say all that to say, today what we're looking at in commandment number seven, do not commit adultery, I really believe that this commandment is putting sexuality in its place. And that's ultimately a good thing. And we're going to look at the fullness of what that means for us as the community of faith, not just in terms of adultery, uh, because it is an extremely helpful thing to put things in their place, but especially something as powerful as sexuality it needs to be put in its place. Um, So what did it really mean for Israel? Um, This is one where I I hesitated to uh, start here, uh, because we just have to remember this is a very ancient culture, and we've talked about last week um, that the morality and the ethics of the people of God, uh, we kind of see a trajectory from Mount Sinai to the Sermon on the Mount in Calvary, right? So we're all clear on that. we know that in the Old Testament they practiced polygamy. Um, they they practiced men could have more than one wife, um, and so we know that there was we as time went on, as the people of faith went on, we knew clear and clear what God's will and desire for the people of God were. Um, and I say all that to say in ancient ancient Israel, this is a thousand years before Jesus' time. Uh, adultery meant two different things for men and women. For a woman. Adultery meant relations with anyone other than the husband um, or the betrothed, right? So basically for women, it it meant what we mean today. But for men, and men, if you're a husband, be ready to get punched in the arm. Um, Women, don't take it out on your husbands. This this is our ancient. uh, In ancient Israel, adultery for men was, was only when you had relations with another man's wife. So adultery wasn't considered in very ancient Israel for men to have relations with an unmarried woman, um, and you can kind of imagine somewhat why that was, because they could take a concubine that, or a wife or even a servant as a concubine slash wife, um, and so as we read in Solomon had how many, what was it, 700 and some wives, right, um, and so uh, we, we just need to be clear about that's what it meant for Israel, and there's a disparity, And, uh, but we know that that wasn't God's true desire. Um, And even if if we get too hard on it, some people may say, oh, well then commandment number seven is really just, uh, you know, protection of property, you know, in the ancient culture, blah, blah, blah. No, it wasn't. And in fact, as you look at the laws in the broader uh, ancient societies, Israel's laws still protected women more so than others. Um, There was actually a law, it's a little known law, we don't, obviously isn't anymore, but if a man took a second wife, and if he started kind of ignoring the first wife, if he started either mistreating her or just not providing for her as he should, that first wife, even if she was a servant concubine, she was released from the man, because that was not okay to take another wife and ignore the other. So there were protections for women. It wasn't completely, um, it wasn't completely seen as property, right, as the other cultures were. Um, and so there was a clear emphasis on this. But um, so I say, I say all that to say, you know, women, if, if you're single and you start dating a man and he says he just wants to get back to a biblical marriage, you may want to question what he means by that. Uh, if he's wanting to go back to uh, Exodus chapter 21, you may want to uh, run away, if you will. Um, but we know that God's will was known more clearly as the people of God continued. And by Jesus' time, it was clear that monogamy uh, between a man and a woman was God's will uh, for marriage, and as we look at adultery. But this commandment was still powerful in Israel to talk about what was acceptable and what was not within sexuality. Um, the really, I think the power of this commandment for Israel, we have to remember that their life as a community, as a people, came only by the power of covenant. Are we aware that a covenant is not a contract, right? A contract can be broken whenever you want. A contract can say, this isn't working for me, and I break it. A covenant is a promise to serve and love forever. When God chose Israel, He made a covenant with them. And so commandment number seven really speaks to the people of God that you are to keep your covenants and not to break them. That if you are breaking your covenants, how can you stay faithful to God and yet break your covenants on earth? It's not acceptable. You can't. Uh, And so we should see the relationship just like as we looked at the father and mother uh, relationship to the children and we talked about God as our father. We also have to think about the language of being married in covenant, how important that was for Israel to keep their covenants because their very existence as the people of God depended on the covenant with God. This is different. This is a unique and powerful relationship that God chose Israel. It didn't have to happen like that. Just like God chose Israel, a man and woman choose one another to enter into a covenant. And for Israel, for the people of God, they had to be honest, faithful people, not only to God, but all of their covenants that they entered into. Because if the community just starts breaking covenants, faithfulness is nowhere to be found. And they have a hard time relating to God as a faithful covenant uh, member. And uh, God actually uses the language through the prophets. To say, when Israel isn't faithful to me, it's like a, a cheating spouse, right? That Israel is going to other gods and sleeping with them, and what should I do with an unfaithful spouse? Should I divorce that spouse? Should I get rid of that spouse? But God chose not to. God chose to be faithful even when Israel wasn't. And so when we think of Commandment 7, we can't just think of our human relationships. We really have to think also of the relationship between God and Israel and our relationship with God. That if we're living a lie, breaking our covenants here on earth, that we are breaking also our covenant with God. The two are intertwined in our honesty. And it's also, we need to remember, what we talk about this on Wednesday night. I haven't talked about it too much on Sunday mornings. But what was the main descriptor of God that they always said? It's a Hebrew word called hesed. Covenant faithfulness. That is the descriptor of God. That God is always faithful. God is faithful. It's loving faithfulness. That is the descriptor of who God was to Israel. And so as we enter into a relationship with God who is loving faithfulness, ultimately how dare we be unfaithful in all of our relationships, but especially marriage, as it is so foundational to the community. The commandments really were a protection of the community of Israel. And can you imagine the disruption in a community when people are breaking their covenants, you don't know who is with who, People are living basically a lie if they are breaking their covenant. Um, There there was a practical uh, sense to this as well because a property and uh, uh, the future of the family as they passed down um, land, uh, they had to know who were the parents, right? And so the basis of society in Israel was based on faithfulness to commitments and protecting the family structure, um, so that, they should not commit adultery if you get that. Um, but what is it about, I think the next question for Israel and for us as we look at this, what is it about a sexual relationship outside of marriage that breaks the marriage? What is it about sex that's so powerful that God would say in commandment of 7, you shall not commit adultery because that would do measurable harm? Actually, I need to go back a little bit before I answer that question. Um, no, let me keep going. We'll get there, we'll get there. What is it about sexual relationship that's so powerful? This gets to the point of what God is doing through Israel, he's putting sexuality in its place. Because this is probably, if you, this is one of the most important things to understand about ancient Israel. You kind of read the Bible, and you read about Baal and Astartes and the Old Testament. You think about these other gods, and you hear we talk about fertility gods and the god of Baal and Rand, You've heard about the fertility gods. Has everybody heard about the fertility gods? This is really important because this gets to sexuality. Because really, hang with me. Do you mind if I share this? Because I think this, is, this will relate to our own time. What they really believed in the Canaanite religions, the pagan religions around them, in these fertility rituals... Well, they really believed that when you engaged in sex, you were engaging in a divine power of creation. All of these religions had a male and a female counterpart as their gods, and so they believed that what happened in sex was that you were connecting to that divine power and that you were engaged in the power of the gods to create life. And we, you can kind of imagine, see the connection with that, right? And so what happened was, when you do that, when you see in sexual relationships an incredible power of divine and mystical properties, like the pagan Canaanite religions and the fertility religions did, what happens then is that the power is in sex itself, and it doesn't really matter who you do it with. Are you tracking with me? And that's why we, we hear about temple prostitution and we think, well, how did anybody do that and why would you ever, well, who's doing it? And it's because if sex in itself is some mystical divine thing, it doesn't matter who you do it with, it's simply when you engage in that act, you're engaging with the gods. Are you tracking with me? And so what God does in Israel, he takes sexuality and he puts it in its place. He says there's nothing divine about that. And Israel, throughout its history, it never saw God as a sexual being. It never saw creation as an act of sexual encounter. It was out of God's will to create. And so through Israel, sexuality gets put in its place. That's not about the act itself. There's no inherent power or religious significance in that way. Instead, it's put in its place, what do we believe, in Genesis chapter 2, as uh, the first humans are created, male and female, they come together, and it says in Genesis chapter 2, and they become one flesh when they join together. For Israel and the power of God, they were clear, sex was a good thing. It was a blessing from God, right? But the, the only power in sex is really to bind two people together, to share life in love with one another, right? There was no divine component that we weren't engaging with the gods like the pagan religions around them. That it was when two people came in love with one another, entered into a covenant with one another, they were able to share life and really a new life was created out of that one flesh. And so for Israel, the the commandment number seven really says that there is damage done to the person, and to the community when sex is outside of that covenant. You hear me? You tracking with me? Let me just kind of refresh, because we're going to come back to this. That if, if you're a pagan Canaanite of a fertility cult, it's just really about the sex. It's really about that union, whoever you do it with. But Israel put sexuality in its place the revelation of God and said, No, it's about the covenant, it's about sharing life and love with one another. Mm-hmm. And sex is a gift that binds two people together, but if you start using outside of that covenant relationship, harm will come to the community and to the person. Right? right? Are we tracking with me? So, uh Israel wasn't, they weren't prudes. Don't look at Commandment 7 and say, oh, they were prudes. They knew it was a good thing. They knew it was a blessing. They weren't shy about it in the least. But there was a, a much different conviction about it than the surrounding culture. It was put in its place, and we believe it is a very appropriate place that it was put in. All right, so what does this protect us from? Is that, is, is that, is, as Israel looked at it, what does it really protect us from? And here I kinda wanna stop and say, this is not just um, a sermon or a, a commandment uh, for those of us in a marriage. Um, it, this is a commandment that really protects and enhances the life for all of us. And I hope as we look at this second point, we're gonna see how it does this. Because on the front end, just the, let, let's just state the obvious. This commandment does protect us um, that we just know where sexuality belongs. It belongs in a covenantal marriage relationship, amen. Um, and that protects us that when we get in that relationship with a believer, with a Christian, we just know, we, we shouldn't have to worry that they're gonna be tempted or, or want to uh, engage in that type of relationship with anybody else but yourself, right? So th- there's an obvious kind of protection there. But let's go deeper, can we? What this really protects us from and what this gives us. Commandment number seven really protects and elevates intimacy. Um, you and I were created for relationship. Amen? We talk about that. You and I were first and foremost created with, for relationship with God. And also, we were created, as the, the law tells us, that we were created to be in relationship with one another. We need that. We need both of those relationships. Um, and what we, need, we, we really were created for as well in those relationships is intimacy. And what I mean by intimacy in its purest form, really, is to to be known and to know another truly and to be able to be vulnerable. And so there's a difference. Uh, Sexuality and intimacy are not the same thing. Do we see that? That we are called to have intimacy with God, that we are to know God, and God is to know us in a very close relationship, to be fully known. We can have and are called to have intimacy with God. And we are called and able to have intimacy with friendships. That friends can know us, who we are truly. That we can be vulnerable with friends. We can share life with them. And we can receive intimacy in friendships. And we are called to have those close relationships. We need those. People need close and intimate relationships to survive outside of the bonds of marriage, right? But what we believe about marriage... Is that that is that amazing relationship that is the most intimate, is called to be the most intimate. And sexuality is a blessing in marriage that enhances that intimacy and it draws people together. Though what we believe about it is that it does a bonding, as we just talked about, the Israel. That it bonds two together in a very intimate way, right? And what this protects us from, though. I think as we are going to talk about sexual sin, what it really, I believe what sexual sin is, is really a trying to fulfill that intimacy need in us, right? That I need to have a relationship, a loving relationship with people. But when we fall into sexual sin, that we are trying to fulfill that in all the wrong ways. And what our culture sees and what we try to do sometimes is we try to use sex and sexuality to fulfill that need to have close relationships. And so we get focused on the wrong thing. And that runs into big problems. Because what we believe this protects us from is that if we try to use our sexuality to find intimacy, to fulfill it out of its proper context, that we are actually gonna do more harm than good. Because there is a power in sexuality to bind together But if we're using it flippantly, if we're just trying to chase our own intimacy with random partners, without the covenant commitment of marriage, we are gonna do harm to ourselves. And we should have compassion on people because they are looking for our God-given need for intimacy and close relationship, but they're looking for it in all the wrong places. So commandment number seven protects us to say no. Don't look don't use sexuality outside the bonds of marriage to try to fulfill yourself because it's not going to work. You're going to do harm to yourself. You're going to do harm to the community. Right. Trying to fulfill intimacy with sexuality is is really like someone trying to cover up pain and emotional pain with drugs and alcohol. It will need more and more and more, and it will never fulfill and satisfy, right? And I think those of us in marriages and marriages for a long time can testify that what keeps us together in a marriage can't be sex, right? Let's just be honest. It has to be an intimate relationship we're depending on, right? Passion fades, but intimacy should not. So maybe I should speak to those of us in marriages that we need to always have our eye on intimacy, a vulnerable, close relationship where we're growing together. That is the covenant of marriage. Um, And sex can be that powerful binding force that God gave us to enhance that. But do we see the difference of the protection of this both for single people and for married people? You can have true intimacy. You were created for intimacy and it doesn't need to be based on sex. If you are single, you can be fulfilled in a relationship with God and neighbor. You truly can be. But if you are called and blessed to find another person to share life with, to enter into the bonds of marriage, then sexuality begins to be a blessing to enhance that relationship and bind you together in powerful ways. Commandment number seven protects us from really harming ourselves and finding a life of unfulfillment. All right, let's, let's move to Christ. And uh, if you, if you, like I said last week, if you thought it's already uh, hard, it's about to get harder as we look at the words of Jesus, if you want to flip over to your Bible, I'll turn to Matthew chapter five. Um, of course, as we looked at the very ancient of Israel, as so we talk about, I mean, Jesus' time is still ancient, but by this time, monogamy was the clear expectation of uh, the people of God for Judaism. And so we see that pretty clearly in in, uh, Titus. There was still a little polygamy going on there, but in Titus, we just actually read it uh, for Brother Ross's memorial out here, Uh, but in Titus it says, when you're looking for elders of the church, make sure you look for someone that's only married once, right? Um, And basically the expectation for the church was, uh, don't look for someone that's married seven times and have seven wives. Look for someone that's only married once. So that was an expectation for elders in the church. And so it's clear By Jesus' time, uh, that monogamy was God's will for the people of God. Uh, But let's look at Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 27, that Jesus, like he did uh, for us last week, will pick up this commandment and uh, teach us a deeper way. You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if you, your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go to hell. Once again, as Jesus takes up the Ten Commandments, He doesn't abolish them. He doesn't say, yeah, I have a different teaching. He really fulfills the law and goes much deeper and says if you're just worried about your outward act, you are worried about 10% of the game. What God really desires for you is not only your actions be holy, but your heart be holy as well. That God would do a transforming work in you, that is God's desire for us. So what is lust? Lust is not attraction, okay? we will be attracted to other people, married or single. You're going to be attracted to people, and that's not wrong. Like, I, I think it's important to fight the right battle. If you, if you fight the wrong battle, you're going to lose the war, right? Um, and so if we try to walk around and say, I, I can't be attracted to anybody, uh, don't look around, you're going to, you're going to lose that. We're, you're going to be attracted to people, and that's fine, right? Um, it, it is appropriate to look on someone and say, boy, that person's really attractive to yourself. That's, that's fine. Uh, there's a mile wide between attraction and lust. Lust falls into it when you look on, uh, upon a person and you begin to yearn, and it's really closely to coveting, right? It is, it is begin to yearn to make that person yours without any sort of relationship, without their knowledge, And and this can be done in in sexual ways, but it can also just be done, uh, some of us may not sexualize it, but we just may, man, I really wish that person was my spouse. Um, And that we really have just almost a coveting uh, nature of maybe what they have in their relationship. And so we look upon someone, and we basically make for a selfish end that we wish we had them, right? That we objectify that person only for our own desires, um, it's an inward, selfish looking upon a person. I mean, there is a, uh, the easiest way to diagnose it is if you are fantasizing sexually about another person, that is lust, right? You are using them without any of their permission, without their knowledge for your own pleasure or your own uh, desires. It is an inward, selfish looking upon a person. A, a lust is a, a, a problem Because it is so closely related to our need for love and intimacy. But it becomes a twisting of that, and it becomes an inwardly focused, just pleasing myself, just focusing on what I want and coveting over someone versus what we are called to do, to have self-sacrificial and self-giving love towards people, right? Do you see the difference of attraction and lust and love? Um, lust is inherently selfish, as we look uh, to people. Uh, I, I do think uh, pornography is the clearest example of lust and is the biggest purveyor of lust, uh, because it is it is most clearly just an objectifying a person for your own selfish needs without any relationship being there. Right? Um, th- there is a no way part or parcel of the gospel that you can defend as selfish. Uh, self-serving love that has no basis in relationship. Um, and so uh, we, we need to be clear that pornography has no place in the Christian life um, and that you can be freed from that. And it is dangerous because it is tapping into a desire for intimacy. Um, but it, it can destroy that capacity as is inward focused. Um, and so Jesus comes down very hard on lust. Rightfully so, uh, because it can be a consuming thing and it takes the place of what we are really called for. Do you see the danger there? Uh, that we are really called for self-serving love, to sacrifice for one another out of love for both in friendships and marriage, and yet lust comes in and it's an evil kind of twisted way and says, oh, just worry about what you want, right? Um, there, there can be... Sin and sexual sin in a marriage. Uh, A marriage doesn't completely free us. If you are just using another person for your own needs and you're never considering what they want or what they need, that is not what God intended for you even within a marriage relationship. Um, And so it's not just, oh, I'm married, I'm totally off the hook for anything worrying about this. The call of the gospel is always to be considering the needs of someone else laying down your own needs on their behalf Um, and that's why lust is so dangerous and that's why jesus looks upon people and says hey if you're struggling with this do whatever you can to remove it from your life because it is destroying your capacity to fulfill the gospel to love people as you are called to do right this is why it's so dangerous this is why it can keep you uh, out of the kingdom of god because if you're ever focusing your life on yourself uh, you cannot fulfill the the needs of discipleship to follow uh, Christ. So it's a corrupting influence on our hearts uh, that is dangerous and is so dangerous because it is connected to our need for intimacy. Here's the good news, though. There is a power and a good and a blessing much greater than lust, um, and that is the power of God's love in our lives to free us from, from the bondage of sin. God can fulfill our need for intimacy and closeness and love and relationship by the power of his forgiveness, by the power of his presence in our lives. That God knows who you are more than anyone else ever will. God accepts you, will forgive you, redeem you, transform you. And that is a power that is far greater than any sin or sexual sin. And that you can be freed. And sometimes I think we, we talk about people, oh, well, you know, You can be freed from inappropriate uh, lust or uh, as you look upon other people. You can be. You can be fulfilled. You don't have to be married. You don't have to be in a sexual relationship. You can have what you need through relationship with Jesus Christ and in the community of faith. That your friendships here in this church, we should be fulfilling our need for friendships and love and care right here in the community of faith. So there is good news. There is hope. This is not, oh, here's the boogeyman. Watch out for him. This is to say Jesus came to free us from this, and we don't have to worry about it anymore, right? Amen. Thank you, Kim. I mean, this is good news. I mean, so many times we Christians are like, oh, my goodness, what if I look at the wrong thing? God's power for holiness, sanctification, and love in our lives is way more powerful than any temptation that may be out there. And I would say that if we are struggling, uh, I'm not trying to put anybody down, we're going to get to, uh, but if you're struggling, instead of focusing on, focus on the power of God's love in your life. Focus on the power of God's acceptance in your life and his forgiveness and what he is doing and that fulfillment of that relationship. Those other things will fall away by the wayside. Um, and so there is good news that God came to free us even from the power of lust. Let me say something quickly, um, about Jesus' next words in the Sermon on the Mount, because this is in talking about adultery, he picks up divorce, uh, and I know I'm moving along, uh, so I'll I'll talk slower, you listen quicker. Um. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce, but I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Um, these, these words have been brought up to people that are in very difficult circumstances in their lives. And I think they have done a lot of harm when they don't need to. Um, we have to realize, this is where it's very important to realize who and what situation is Jesus speaking into. He's speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious men who have been misusing the law for their own selfish gain, Right? Uh, and so what was happening is, is that for any, any reason whatsoever, they felt free to just write a certificate of divorce to a wife and go get a new wife, right? Um, that was never God's intention. That was an exploitation of what Jesus said, uh, Moses gave you kind of an out just because your hearts were hardened. That is never God's will, right? And so we're clear that marriage is a lifelong covenant. But we should also be clear that there are things that break that covenant. And and unfaithfulness is one of them. Um, And that does break the marriage covenant. Um, But Jesus here is speaking to the men, basically not trying to... He's basically saying it's a protection for women. uh, Because their also financial wellness was based on the husband relationship, right? And so um, he's saying you can't pass them around like tokens, there are, things, there are things more than even just adultery that break the marriage relationship. Uh, and, and for especially women, if you are in an abusive relationship, if there's domestic violence happening in a marriage, that is a full breaking of the marriage covenant, and you need to get out of that situation. Okay, so Don't ever let anybody use these words to say, oh, no, you need to stay in it. They have broken that marriage relationship. They have broken the vows, and you need to, need to get out. There may need to be some reconciliation if, if someone needs to be held accountable and they repent. I'm not saying it's immediately divorce, but I, I know I've heard uh, stories of women that have stayed in too long for just an inappropriate interpretation of that text. Um, and so that was speaking to men who were really abusing women. Um, and Jesus was holding them accountable. And so we should do the same in our own. Um, marriage should never be treated flippantly. Uh, but don't ever browbeat uh, people that are in a very difficult part of their lives and are struggling uh, in, a, in a difficult marriage. Um, so I, I could go on with that. Let me, let me just return kind of to what this means for us, and especially considering Jesus' words on kind of lust and sexuality for us in the church. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of make this brief. You'll kind of catch what I'm saying. But I really think we're in a time a lot like the ancient, ancient Israelites. That the culture around us make sexuality into like a God. That it gives sexuality uh, almost a divine status in our culture, right? Um, And that they they chase it. It is uh, one of the highest goods that they pursue. Um, And for us, I think as a people of God, our job is to put sexuality in its rightful place, um, and I think when it's put in its rightful place, then it can help the community flourish and it can be an extreme blessing. But when it's not put in its place, when it's given either too low of a status or if it's given way too high of a status, it can kind of wreak havoc. And I think what's happening in our society today, actually, it's given way too high of a status, just like it was for the ancient fertility rites, And so that you just chase it at all costs, no matter what it means for other people, right? It's almost a self-serving thing that you just say, I'm gonna fulfill my own sexuality no matter what. That's nah, too high of an elevation. And I think to combat this sometimes, I want to speak to the church. I know I'm kind of preaching in the choir today. The church then, here's been our reaction. Our reaction has almost been, I'm speaking on of my own experience growing up in the church as a teenager. Our re- reaction is to say, well, we're going to elevate it too. We're going to say it, it's up here. Um, and that's not the good reac- that's not a good reaction. We need to put it in its place to say it's good. It's a blessing. It's only for marriage but it's not the goal of your life. It is not the fulfillment of your life. Because when I was a teenager growing up in the church, they said two things to keep me away from sex before marriage, which we sh- I know it's hard to keep teenagers. You know, we, we, we want to guard them, we should. But I was told that it was better than I could ever believe. And it's so good and it's so amazing that you just better wait till marriage. And it just, you just have no idea and it's amazing. That's highlighting too much, right? Am I being real? Did you grow up like this too, Luke? This is like growing up in the church, right? We're cousins, so we kind of... You're just. It, well, what you're doing, you're sitting for teenagers, and you're saying, here's Pandora's box. Don't look about it, think about it, or touch it until you get married, but it's amazing. What's going to happen when you do that, right? Right? And also, how, how many of us, when we got married, sex started paying our bills and going to work for us, and, oh... Yes, it's a blessing, but you still wake up and put your pants on the same way. It's not, it's not a divine status, folks, right? Don't give it that power, and don't give that power to teenagers, because I think it kind of pushes them towards it more. You need to say, if I'm, when I talk to my son, I'm going to say, yeah, sex is a great thing, you know, it's, it's a blessing, but son, you were created for so much more than that. There are so many better things in life. Don't ever focus on that. Don't make that the goal of your life, right? The other flip side of that, though, and I'm I'm saying this to us. I know most of us are out of our teenage years, but some of us are raising teenagers, will be raising teenagers, or grandparents to kids that are coming up. So it's important for us to help even your children talk to your grandchildren about this. The other thing was... I. I really thought teenage, the worst thing I could ever do in my teenage life was have sex before marriage. That it was drilled into me so much that you better not do this ever. I, it developed, and I think for a lot that grew up in the church, it developed a sense of shame and guilt around sexuality. That it became this dangerous thing that it was the worst thing spiritually I could ever do. I, I, I really... It, I'm speaking from my own experience, and I think that is a bit, creates a very unhealthy relationship that when you do go into a sexual relationship, you're bad. And we in the church need to be clear, yet yeah, sex is for marriage, and, and we, we hold our children and teenagers to that. It, it is, can be a dangerous thing, but it is not the worst, most powerful thing spiritually that you could run into in your life. Don't give it that power in a teenager's life. Because if they ever do mess up, there will be incredible amounts of shame and guilt and it will complicate the relationship and that's when they don't want to tell you anything that's going on in your life and that's when they're tempted to get an abortion, to hide it all, and it comes into an endless cycle of shame and guilt. We in the church need to have our priorities straight spiritually. There's a C.S. Lewis quote that I really like. Most of us like C.S. Lewis and I think we have it uh, up here. C.S. Lewis said something kind of help us put our priorities in straight. He said this, if anyone thinks that Christians regard chast- unchastity as the supreme vice, he is quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual the pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoil sporting, of backbiting, the pleasures of power, of hatred there are two things inside of me competing with the human self which I must try to become. They are the animal self and the diabolical self. The diabolical self is the worst of the two. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it is better to be neither. Better to be neither. Do you see... What is the opposite of love? It is hatred. It is power. It is a lot of things going on in our culture today. When people, maybe a teenager, it gets confused, gets off on the wrong track. We can correct that track. But if, when I was a teenager, if I would have engaged in hatred, if I would have engaged in all... The spiritual sins that he's talking that's the worst thing that could ever happen to me. That could have been the thing that damned me for the rest of my life. So we need to have our spiritual priorities straight. Don't give sexuality too much power either way. Put it in its place and I really believe it will fall into its place even in our young people's lives and in our own life as well. Um, I could go on. I think this goes into rules. Um, don't be too scared. If you're a holiness person, God's at work in your life. Um, we shouldn't be making extreme rules uh, about sexuality. I, I will meet with a, a woman, I'll I have lunch, I've had lunch with some of our women leaders, um, and you know I have protections, I, I, say, I tell Rebecca, everything I'm always doing, she knows, she knows she can always check my phone, so there's no danger in you texting me, but just know that my wife at any time, and I can check her phone at any time, there's protections, but sometimes we can go overboard, and sometimes it really puts women on the outside, right? Um, sometimes we just create a boys club because you're saying, well, I'm not going to meet with a woman. Uh, you know, n- Jewish men would never even talk to a woman in public, right? A lot of times out of fear, we can put strict of rules in place. I'm not saying go willy-nilly, right? There needs to be protections, but don't go overboard. The power is not that great. The power of the Holy Spirit working in me is far greater than the power of any temptation. Right? And so we can have a holiness community that doesn't have to be feared that if I'm talking to Miss Alley by ourselves, right, um, that ne- anybody needs to be worried. Because um, if, if I'm that close where like a, a, a lunch with someone is going to send me over the edge, folks, I shouldn't be your pastor. Right? Um, I'm going to have protections and play just to say so somebody can't accuse something, uh, but I'm not going to live in fear. Um, I'm going to minister to people, and I'm going to invite men and women into the call of ministry, into the life of ministry, and help them. Does that make sense? So I, had a long, I had a whole other few pages on that, but that, that sums that up. All right. Thou shalt not commit adultery. It's a wonderful protection, of protecting one of the most beautiful things in life. The relationship two married people that get to share life and intimacy and love in a powerful way. And it should be protected. It should be cherished for the people of God. But for all of us, there is a power much greater than the power of sexuality, and that is the love of Jesus Christ in our lives and what God can do for us. So please know Trust that power. I hope you are are connected to Christ. If you don't know that intimacy, if you don't know the fulfillment that you can have with God, I'd invite you to pray about that right now. Come talk to me about what that relationship can look like if you've lived a Christian life without the fulfillment of closeness with God. Because it is possible, it is available, and it is what you were made for. So embrace it. And let us go share that with others. It, it, it Spread the message. There is a power much greater than any form of sexuality. It is the power of God's redeeming love in our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, we thank you, we thank you uh, that you have created us and you have created us in such a way to have uh, the blessing of love and community and intimacy. And I pray in these moments that we would turn to you, that we would examine our relationship with you. And would you speak to our hearts? You that know us in the depths of our soul, we come before you now and we lay open our lives and simply say, here we are. Have your way in us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Um, As we come to a time of communion and time of prayer, as I always do, I I simply ask you to take a posture of prayer that you would either pray at an altar, pray in your seat before you come down for communion. But examine your relationship. Examine your heart. Maybe you have had your focus on the wrong things. Maybe you've been chasing intimacy in all the wrong places. And now is just a moment maybe to ask for forgiveness, maybe to ask for power over the temptation, but for at least for all of us, now is the time to say, God, I want to deepen the relationship. I want to know you more. I want to open my life to you daily. As we consider and come to the table, we know that God took the first step towards us as John sang about that what we celebrate in the cross and the resurrection is, was a message of I love you and I don't want anything ever to separate us. And so when you take the bread and you dip it in the cup, I hope you hear the words, I love you. I love you. I'm here for you. God's desire is for us. How will you respond to that as our servers come down? On the night our Lord was betrayed, he took bread. And having broken it, he gave thanks and said, this is my body broken for you. Take whenever you do, eat in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and said, this is the cup of the covenant. This is my blood shed for you and the forgiveness of sins for all. Take, drink whenever you do in remembrance of me. All are invited to the table today. Uh, The decision is up to you. How will you respond to God's love in your life? Come down and partake when you are ready. Let us continue in a time of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are here today only by your grace and your love for what you have done for us. And I pray as we go throughout our lives this week and in the coming months and years of our lives that we will always be ready to deepen the relationship with you. That we would never try to hide anything from you. That we would never try to pretend in your presence that we would always be open and vulnerable with you. That you may shape us, you may form us chiefly. That you may transform us by your love that every day we may know your love in a deeper way, that we may trust your love in a deeper way, and that we may find our hearts and our souls fulfillment in your love and your love alone. That no matter if we are single or married, no matter what stage of life we find ourselves in, that the fullness of our life would be known through the love of Jesus Christ. And may we trust that. May we hold strong to that. May we not look outside of that love to fulfill us because everything else will fail us, Lord. And we confess that now. Forgive us for those times that we have wandering eyes from our relationship with you. Call us back to yourself now. Sanctify us holy. Help us to be your holy people so on fire for you that we can't help but share your love with others. We lift up those who are struggling today and we think chiefly of uh, Blanca and Harvey and the rest of the family for losing uh, Miss Rose this week. We pray that your spirit of comfort and peace would be upon Harvey as he mourns his parents. But may we be reminded of the great hope that we have and the knowledge that they are reunited in the presence of Christ. We give thanks for their lives and we just pray that during this week you'll provide for the family in large and small ways we lift up those who are dealing with family uh, difficulties for those who are struggling to know where the next job is coming from or the next place to live lord we pray that you provide for them those who are uh, fleeing the uh, pains of addiction and the bondage of addiction lord would you continue your spirit continue to free them to renew them to strengthen them And to show them what new life through Christ looks like, Lord. We lift up those who are dealing with uh, diagnoses or potential diagnoses or health problems. We lift up Kathy Horvath, Lord. We lift up friends with cancer that are struggling. Those recovering from surgery, preparing for surgery. May your healing hand be upon all of this. And may we trust you even as we go through the storms of life. Even as we struggle May we rest in your unfailing embrace that you will never leave us nor forsake us. We lift up our church ministries to you, Lord, and we thank you that you've entrusted with us this beautiful church building and ministry of the kingdom of God and spreading the gospel. And we pray that would we do that faithfully. May we have your spirit to empower us, to give us knowledge and wisdom and strength and endurance in the ministry of the kingdom. We pray that you'd bless the preschool, Lord, The little children there, protect them, guide them, plant the seeds of faith deep within their heart. For those meeting here on a weekly basis, escaping the bondage of addiction, we pray that you'd bless and continue that work. For those uh, we are able to minister to in the food pantry, bless that ministry. Lord, um, we need you in this place. We need you in our lives. We need you in our ministries. Otherwise, there's no reason to do any of this. And so we pray that we may keep you at the center, we may see your hand at work, and that you would move through our ministry here at Asheville First Church of the Nazarene. Help us to impact our neighborhood in new and powerful ways and draw people to the gospel and draw people to Jesus Christ so that they may know the same love and fulfillment that we have. We lift up our district and our church leaders to you right now, Lord. We pray for Greg Mason and the North Carolina district and the kingdom of God all around the world. May you advance your kingdom, provide for it. We lift up those Christians who are laying their lives on the line, who are living in fear right now because of their witness to Christ. May you protect them and provide for them. We lift up our local and our state and our national leaders, Lord. We pray that you give them wisdom and grace to carry out their duties. May we treat other nations rightly and promote peace and justice wherever we can. Lord, we thank you that before we loved you, you have loved us. So may we be faithful to that love in all of our ways. Help us to pray as you taught us, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever, amen. Church family, would you stand with me? I think it's so special to be thinking about the beauty of covenant and love. And Harvey shared with me, next week would have been Ross and Rose's 77th anniversary. Um, So maybe uh, let us leave from this place knowing and remembering the work of God that can happen in us in faithfulness and love. No matter who we are, God's love is enough for us that we may be faithful to it. So may you be God's faithful people. May you be fulfilled in his love and know it to its fullest.